It's been a, a fun journey through our special series on eldership, but I've missed our time in Hebrews and have enjoyed greatly studying it again this week, and I pray our time will be profitable as we turn our attention again to this wonderful letter. Now, if you've been in Christ any length of time at all, you understand that the Word of God is, in fact, a treasure. It, it provides continual spiritual sustenance for us, and, and it equips us to do battle with the daily temptations of life that come from the, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. But particularly in the Psalms, the Psalms have a unique way through poetic language of painting a picture for us to help us understand truth through the form of illustration. One example of that is in Psalm 130 and verse 6 where the psalmist writes, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Here the psalmist draws our attention to the watchman and the, the responsibility laid upon his shoulders. Some of you, like my father, served in the military, and I remember my dad telling me stories of his time in Vietnam, particularly when it was his turn to provide guard duty in the tower around his base through the night. There around the base camp was several rows of barbed wire, and in that wire was, was tied a string, and on the end of that string, a couple of tin cans. And those tin cans were spread all around the camp, and two men would sit in the watchtower. There were multiple watchtowers around the base, and they would sit through the night just waiting and listening for those tin cans to rattle. Because if anything touched that barbed wire, the tin cans would bang together, and they would immediately fire in the direction of that noise. The reason was because the, the enemy soldiers had been known to come in the night and strip down to try to crawl under that wire without hitting the barbed wire and alerting the soldiers in the tower in, an, in order to infiltrate the camp. And so they were instructed to fire at the slightest sound. And so all through the night there was constant gunfire as even the wind could cause those cans to rattle. Now imagine yourself. In the middle of the night, sitting in that watchtower, how would you feel? What sense of responsibility would you feel to stay awake when you know that all of the people behind you are depending on you to be faithful, to stay awake through the night, and to fire at the slightest sound? In addition to that, how much would you long for the sun to peek over the horizon if that was your responsibility? It's that sense of urgency that the psalmist intends to, to bring up in our minds when he says, I wait for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Hebrews, then you understand that where we are in chapter 3, there's been this consistent command for us to beware, to be watchful, to be on guard. We're to be like that man in the watchtower waiting and watching. But in this case, specifically, we are to be watchful and on guard against hard-hearted unbelief. Hard-hearted unbelief will destroy us. And so the author of Hebrews has been clear that we are to wake up, watch out, beware, and be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief. Now, it's been some time since we've been in Hebrews, so let me just remind you of the context. The theme of the letter is the superiority of Christ, 
And we're studying a section that runs from chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13. And we're coming off of a series where the author talked about the superiority of Christ over Moses. After giving us that wonderful exposition, the author now has begun to apply that fact. The fact that Jesus is superior to Moses should have an effect on our daily lives. It's with that in mind, then, that we come to our section in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 15. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now, this section really has one overarching theme. It's simply this. Be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief towards Christ. Be on guard. This, remember, is, is the second warning passage in Hebrews. There will be several warning passages. This warning passage is all about, all about being aware of a hard heart of unbelief. Now, the section here in verses 7 to 11 is taken directly from Psalm 95. We've already taught through that section, but, but don't forget that he is using Psalm 95 as the basis for the instruction that he's giving us here in this text. He is not only expositing Psalm 95, but really applying Psalm 95 to us, to his original audience and also to us. Remember that Psalm 95 is all about the wilderness generation that was underneath the authority of, of Moses and his ministry. And it's calling us to examine their failed response, their unfaithful response to God through Moses and to be on guard so that we don't follow in their footsteps. And the point is this. If the wilderness generation suffered the judgment of God for their rejection of his revelation through Moses, then how shall we escape if we, respond with, if we don't respond with humble faith and obedience to Christ? And so the author's given us what we're calling four tactics. Four tactics for guarding against a hard heart. We've already seen three of these tactics in the past. Tactic number one, we called remember the past. Remember the past, verses 7 through 11. That was simply reading through and studying Psalm 95. And remember that the wilderness generation rejected God in two primary ways. First of all, they questioned God's ability his power, and secondly, they questioned God's character, his ability, and his power. And that sinful, hard-hearted response on the part of the wilderness generation resulted 
And God's saying to them, you shall not enter my rest. And you remember, the wilderness generation died in the wilderness. Now he goes on to begin to apply that remembrance of the past to us as individuals. And that's the second tactic. Tactic number two, he called us simply to examine your heart. Examine your heart, verse 12. Remember, this is where the the command comes in to take care, be on guard, watch out. Watch out so that you as an individual don't respond to the word of God in the same way that the wilderness generation has. And there was an individual response here, but also a corporate response. We, as a church, are to have a soft heart of faith as we respond to the word of God. And that brought us then to a corporate application. We had the individual application, examine your heart, and then the corporate application, tactic number three, encourage the church. Verse 13, encourage the church. He says there, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today. To encourage is to urge strongly. We talked about the fact that the implication here is that we as a church are to live in such close fellowship and community with one another that we have relationship that is deep enough for us to lovingly come alongside and to help encourage each other in our faith so that we guard against a hardened heart. Now that's where we left off last time. Here today, we turn our attention to verses 14 and 15 and the fourth and final tactic for guarding against a hardened heart. And it's simply this, tactic number four, cling to faith. Cling to faith. In verse 14 here, he begins with the word for. So this is connecting directly to what we've already studied. It's, he's still in the flow of thought of take care, watch out, encourage one another for this reason. Be on guard against a hardened heart by examining your own heart, encouraging others. And now he adds by also personally clinging to faith with perseverance. Cling to faith. But before he gets into the specific instruction here, he's going to give us a wonderful reality that we have to keep in mind. A glorious truth about every Christian. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ. We have become partakers of Christ. Now this is an instance in which a little bit of grammar makes a significant theological impact and our understanding. Notice the, the verb, have become partakers of Christ. Have become. That verb is in the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense in the Greek language, I've described to you before, but it's important for us to understand again today. The, the perfect tense is, is typically used of something that happens in the past, a one-time action in the past that has ongoing implications for the future. And that's the idea here. Have become partakers of Christ. So we have become, if we are true believers, we've become partakers of Christ in the past. But the implications of that stretch on into the present and on into the future. It's a settled reality. If you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the text says here, you are currently a partaker of the Lord Jesus Christ. The verdict has been made. It will never be revisited. It is a settled reality. Once you become a partaker of Christ, you are then forever 
a partaker of Christ. And that reality, as we'll see, should have a dramatic effect on the way that we live our lives. And that's what the author will turn his attention to here in just a moment. But first we have to answer the question, what does it mean? to be a partaker of Christ. If this is such a great reality that we're to anchor our faith upon, we have to understand what the word means. Now, I have to tell you, there is some debate about how to to translate this word partaker. There are some translations that you, you may have that translate it as a companion of Christ. But I agree with the NAS here that the best way to translate this word in context is either partaker or sharer. Of Christ, Both of them have the same indication. The point the author is making is that we are in union with Christ. This is another way to emphasize our union as believers with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are obviously other illustrations in Scripture that make the exact same point. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we studied this idea that Christ is the head and we are the body of Christ, also emphasizing our union with Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22-23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The scriptures clearly teach that we become part of the body of Christ at conversion because we're baptized into Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body Uh, Though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one Spirit. At conversion, the Holy Spirit incorporates us into the body of Christ, uniting us with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Since then, each of us have been partakers or sharers of Christ. And we understand that having been baptized into the body of Christ, that's a reality that will be true of us forever. And we know that from several places in Scripture, but just listen to the words of Jesus himself. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And so you see that this truth of of us being partakers of Christ is initially to provide assurance and security for the Christian. But beyond that, it's to provide motivation. It's a motivation for the way that we are to live. This precious reality that you and I have the privilege of being partakers of Christ should change our lives. It should change the way that we live. And that transformed life is to persevere. Uh, The true believer will persevere in the faith because the Holy Spirit's come to live within him or her. And though there will be temptations, though the Christian certainly still uh, struggles with sin and has to battle sin, the true believer will remain faithful in his faith in Christ until the Lord returns or brings him home. But remember here that there is an important truth that we have to keep in mind as we begin to apply this. And the author hints at this because there's not a period after this statement, but a comma. He says, 
for we have become partakers of Christ. And we might think, hooray, maybe there's an exclamation mark or a period, but the text is going to actually introduce a comma. And so before we deal with what comes after that comma, let me just make sure that you keep in mind firmly that the verb here is in the perfect tense. So nothing that comes after this comma is a contradiction of the fact of what he just said here in the first half of this sentence. So if you're a genuine believer, your, your assurance ought not be shaken by what comes next in this phrase. But if you're a pretender, if you're here this morning and you have appeared to be a believer on the outside, all the while knowing in your heart of hearts you've never truly bowed your knee in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, then for you, this comma should be very unnerving. Because what comes after this comma is the word, if. If. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. That settled reality is true of every believer in Christ, comma, but we know that because of the condition. If. We've become partakers. If. Now, the author of Hebrews is famous for doing this, of, of causing us to evaluate our faith, the genuineness of our faith, and making a, a truth statement that's true of every Christian, but then introducing a conditional statement to have us test ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. We, we saw a very similar phrase back in verse 6 of the exact same chapter, Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So here in verse 6, the statement is that we're members of Christ's household. That's a, a confident statement of fact. But he introduces the conditional statement, if we hold fast our confidence. The author is going to say basically the same thing here with slightly different wording. Look back, look back at the text, verse 14. For we've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, in just a moment, we're going to take this phrase word by word, piece by piece, and break it down to make sure we understand it. But let me make some general observations here first to make sure we understand what he's saying. Because the grammar, again, helps us tremendously to identify both what he's saying and what he's not saying. And we have to be very careful here. This phrase is of crucial importance. In fact, Understanding accurately what he says here is the difference in accurately understanding the gospel and coming to an understanding of that is called a false gospel. We have to truly understand this to be right in our theology. And so the use of the perfect tense early in this verse helps us get the order right. Let me say it to you this way. It's the fact that a person is a partaker of Christ that guarantees their perseverance in the faith. It's the fact that a person is a partaker of Christ that guarantees their perseverance in the faith. In other words, it's not a person's perseverance that secures them as a partaker. You see the difference? You see the order? The order is so crucial. Let me say it even more clearly. A person who is a genuine Christian, 
will persevere in their faith until death as a result of having been genuinely redeemed by God. So it is our redemption then that secures our perseverance and not the other way around. You see, some people treat this verse as if the first part of the verse is in the future tense. It would read this way. For we will become partakers of Christ if we persevere. That's a false gospel. No, the gospel is you are a partaker of Christ and that will show itself, that will evidence itself as you persevere in the faith because it's God who's at work in you and he will not fail in that work. It's a false gospel, therefore, that says that your redemption will remain in question the entirety of your life and only at the end of your life, if you've persevered, will your salvation be secured. No. The gospel says that we persevere in the faith because our salvation is secure. And that motivates then and becomes the reason that we're able to persevere because it's God who's at work in us. Now let me also say, because this is where some get confused, the fact that it's guaranteed that true believers will persevere in the faith does not mean that that perseverance will not come without a fight. There's some that they, they, they say, how could I truly be a Christian? Because I'm persevering, but man, it's hard. Man, I'm still battling sin. Man, I still battle doubts, and I have to fight those. And, and God's been faithful, and he's brought me thus far. But, but could I really be a believer if I have to struggle this much? The truth is, the guarantee of perseverance is not a guarantee of an easy life with no trials, no temptations. No, the, the, the guarantee of perseverance is that through the trials and through the temptations and with the failures, you will get back up by the power of the Holy Spirit and keep running. And in the end, God will keep you faithful, but it will be a fight. That's why Paul compared it to a fight. He, said, he didn't say, I've slept well on the soft pillow. He said, I have fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. The idea is it was hard. I had to hold on to it. I had to face some very difficult things, but God was faithful, and I've endured to the end. And so, Christian, the true believer will be guaranteed to persevere in their faith, but that doesn't mean it won't come at a cost and with a fight. Now, with that overarching explanation, I want to go back now and look at the individual phrases and help us understand even more deeply what the author is saying. He begins here in the second part of verse 14, if we hold fast, if we hold fast. Now, that, that, those words, hold fast, mean this, to adhere firmly to traditions, convictions, or beliefs. That's the way the word can be used, to, to adhere firmly to something, but not just anything, specifically a, a strong conviction or a belief. So the author's calling those who are genuine partakers of Christ to evidence that by maintaining a firm grip on something. But not just anything. He's calling them to hold fast or, or grip hard onto a very particular reality. And the author says it this way. Hold fast the beginning of our assurance. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. Now, this phrase, we're going to camp out on this phrase for a few minutes here because this is so important and honestly so helpful to understand what this means. We have to know what we're holding on to. What are we being called to persevere in? He says, persevere, hold on to the beginning of our assurance. Now, when we talk about assurance of salvation, 
that is a concept, unfortunately, in, in broader evangelicalism that's become very muddied. When we talk about, do you have assurance of your salvation? Many people, in fact, we might say most people, when they begin to evaluate whether or not they have assurance, they begin to evaluate their feelings and their emotions. Do I feel saved? Do I, do I have a sense of inner peace when I think about my salvation? And, th- and that's essentially how they They test whether or not they're a true Christian. They try to determine how they feel. And so depending on how they feel in that moment when they're asked the question will determine how they answer and with what certainty they answer. But understand, that's not at all what the author's calling us to do here. When he says that we're to hold fast to the beginning of our assurance... He's not saying to go on a treasure hunt of, for emotions in your heart, to, to sort of, sort of d- decipher your feelings on a given day. This is not subjective. It's very, very objective. What he's calling us to do here is very objective. It's very clear. He's telling us to hold on to something that's very, very true. And so think of it this way. Some read this statement that you're just to hold on to the beginning of our assurance And they think, okay, what the author's saying is that I need to think back to when I was saved and the feeling of assurance and how strong it was on that day when I was saved. I need to to maintain that feeling for the rest of my life. Man, what what a depressing way to look for assurance. Because I don't know about you, but as the days come and go, our emotions are all over the map, are they not? And so if we're looking for our emotions and trying to drum up some memory for for some of us that was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago as our assurance, we're going to really struggle with assurance of our faith. Thankfully, that's not at all what the author means. What he's saying is, I want you to hold on to the objective reality that was the basis of your faith in the beginning. Hold on to that same objective truth that stood as the foundation of your salvation then because it's still the foundation of your salvation now. He's calling us, in short, to keep our confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What was the foundation of your faith in the beginning? If you believe the true gospel, it was the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, Christian, go back to the beginning. Hold on to that same assurance, that same confidence, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you hold on to that because that's where your assurance lies. It's not in a feeling. It's not in conjuring up inner peace. It is by looking to the person of Jesus Christ. And our hope... In Jesus Christ was not only in his death, but in his resurrection. Because we understand that as he is resurrected, the guarantee of eternal life becomes realized. We know that we will have the eternal life he promised because it comes from he who is already alive eternally. It's given to us by the one who purchased it. Praise God that our salvation and the assurance of our salvation is not based on our emotions. It's based on the person of Jesus Christ. So understand what the author is saying to you. He says, you are to hold fast. And true believers, when he says those who are partakers of Christ, they are partakers if they hold fast to the beginning of their assurance. What he's saying is they hold fast 
to Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying, Christian, is take your eyes off of yourself and off of your circumstance and put them firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. See him there. And if you have trouble with that, let's let the the Apostle John help us with that. Let's look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, and this vision that he sees of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Christian, see him standing there. The lamb. Notice to the, the description that he gives there, he was a lamb who was as if he'd been slain, and yet what is his posture? He's standing. The Lord Jesus Christ stands there bearing his scars so that you can look to Jesus Christ, understanding that your hope of forgiveness of sins is there in the scars his body bears, but your hope of eternal life is in the fact that he stands there fully alive, guaranteeing to you that he's purchased that redemption and eternal life for you. And so if you're looking for assurance and you're wondering, how do I hold on in the midst of the difficulties of life? Don't look at your circumstance or at yourself. Turn your eyes to Jesus Christ and hold on to your confidence in him because he stands there in the presence of God as if slain, though he lives. True assurance of salvation could not be more objective than that. It rests not in us, not in our feelings, Not in our circumstances, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews says, cling to that faith today and tomorrow and the next day. And keep on clinging to that faith, he says, firm until the end. Firm until the end. That word firm means steadfast. What he's saying is stand flat-footed with your feet concreted into your unwavering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next time someone asks you as a believer if you have assurance of your salvation, instead of going on some internal search for inner peace or a feeling, you stand there unashamedly and reply, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That is our hope. Firm until the end. Day after day. But perhaps you're here this morning and as you search for assurance of salvation, you recognize if you're honest, you have none. Because perhaps you've been resting on something else, something different than salvation by grace alone, 
faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've been playing the game. Maybe you come to church because that's just what you do. Uh, we live in Texas, after all. Your family went to church, and so you want to bring your family to church. Or, or maybe there's pressure from your spouse for you to come to church. But really the question is not do you come to church or do you, do you do the Christian thing, but are you convinced of the fact that you are a sinner who cannot save yourself and that your sins have separated you from a holy God but God has sent to the earth his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to sacrifice that life on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. And the Bible says on the third day he rose again to life, and he's alive even today as we read in Revelation. The Bible says if you will turn from your sins, if you'll humble yourself in repentance of sin, placing your faith squarely on Jesus Christ alone, letting go of any self-righteous attempts of good works and clinging to Jesus as your only hope of salvation, the Bible says you will be saved and you will become a partaker of the Lord Jesus Christ and will have the hope of this verse here. But it begins and ends with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the true believer fights temptation towards hard-hearted unbelief by clinging even tighter to the beginning of his or her assurance, which is the person of Jesus Christ. You know, King David was blessed by God to lead the people of Israel to many military victories over their enemies, which of course was to testify to the world that Israel worshipped the one true God. Those victories really were a victory of God and for his glory. But one of the ways that God provided in human terms for David to be successful in those military endeavors was by gifting him with men who had exceptional talent on the battlefield. In fact, there was a particular group of them known as his mighty men, David's mighty men. And the scriptures talk of their, their valor on the battlefield. One of those mighty men was a, name, a man named Eleazar. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 10, it recounts for us a special moment in the life of Eleazar when he fought for the Lord. It says, He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now this verse pictures Eleazar fighting with with resolve and valor to the point that his hand was physically unable to let go of the sword. He fought until his muscles had wrapped around that sword that, that he couldn't even let it go if he wanted to let it go. And that's an illustration of what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do in our faith as we cling to Christ. At first you cling to him with, with such resolve that, that you refuse to let go, but you cling and you hold it there until not only are you refusing to let go, you can't let go because he's your only hope. To, to, where your faith is formed to the sword as his hand was formed to that physical sword. Cling to your love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to have the same response as the disciples when many stopped following Jesus because his teachings became difficult for them to, to stomach. In John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69, it says, As a result of this, that is Jesus' hard teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were no longer walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's to be the believer's faith. We cling to Christ. We cling to Christ even when the commands of Scripture are difficult, when they grate against our flesh. We cling to Christ when our circumstances and trials become very difficult. We answer like Peter, to whom would we go? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so it is that the author of Hebrews takes this truth and he applies it back again to Psalm 95 in verse 15. He says, I want you to hold on to that idea now. As a partaker of Christ, you've got to persevere in clinging to your faith in Christ. And then he adds this in verse 15. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Literally, that says, in the rebellion, the, the, the people in the wilderness. Again, this is a direct quotation from Psalm 95. And so he's taking that one specific quote, and in context, he's applying that now to, to us, on the heels of what he's just said here. And specifically, notice that word, today. Today. We've already emphasized this in other places because the author has, has used that word today uh, in other places. But, but he's obviously applying this to us in the present tense. When he says today, he means today. And tomorrow it'll mean today. And the day after that, it'll mean today. It means right now in the present tense. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Specifically, The author is applying this clinging to our faith now as resulting in how we respond to the word of God. Understand when he says today if you hear his voice, he's not suggesting that we should all expect God to speak to us with a physical voice in in verbal form. In fact, that's not even the way that God spoke to the the people as a whole there in the wilderness. Remember, he spoke to Moses. Moses then spoke to the people. And God said, what Moses tells you or what Moses writes down, you're to take as if it were I speaking to you. And so in the same way, when he says that we, if we hear his voice, we're talking about this. His voice, it's already been spoken here in the scriptures. When we come to the scriptures and when we read the scriptures and study the scriptures, when we hear them taught... We are hearing the voice of God here on the written page of God's word. And the Holy Spirit then takes the word of God, illuminates the word of God, convicts us to obey the word of God. The the Holy Spirit may even bring the truth of scripture to mind throughout the day as we meditate on the word of God and encounter different circumstances. But essentially we're talking about the word here. How does the believer respond to the word? If you think about it, Every temptation to sin is also a temptation to harden your heart against the revealed word of God. When you are encountered with a sin, you have a choice to either obey the word of God or to obey your flesh. That's really what we're talking about. And so when he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, what he's saying is part of holding on to, clinging to Jesus Christ in faith is coming to the word of God and responding with humble obedience. The placement of this quote is very instructive for us. It comes again right on the heels of verse 14 and all that we've just studied. So 
it brings up the question, how do we as Christians successfully and routinely choose to listen to the Word of God instead of hardening our hearts? When we connect these two verses together, the answer becomes clear. Ensuring a soft heart of obedience comes through the pathway of clinging to our faith in Jesus Christ. As we hold tight to our assurance in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it it causes us then to be responsive to the Word of God. Because once you become a true believer, you begin studying the Scriptures, the truth of God's Word, it's going to continually confront the way you live and think. When you read this book, it will confront you. It's going to show you who God really is and who you really are. And then it's going to call you to come into conformity with the Word of God. And the truth is, that can be really hard. The Word of God is used by the Spirit like a master sculptor. And you are there like a big slab of granite, and the Spirit takes the Word of God, and as you read it, He starts to chip away at that block of granite. And it hurts, and chips are taken away, and and pieces fall off, and yet what He's doing is through the Word of God, He is conforming your character to look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He confronts our pride, confronts our selfishness. He he confronts our wicked desires to follow after the ways of our sinful flesh. And if you try to come to the Word of God on any basis other than the foundation of the fact that your faith is firmly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you will fail in your attempts to apply the Word of God. To come to the Word humbly means we have to come to the Word of God through a gospel lens, returning again to the basis of our faith. I come to the Word of God ready to submit because my heart belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed me. And so I'm committed to His Word because I'm committed to Him. That's the way it has to work if we're to soften our hearts to the Word. Yes, we give our maximum effort towards growth in sanctification, but that effort springs from our confidence and our faith and our love for Jesus Christ. The prerequisite then for hearing the word of God and responding in obedience is to stand steadfast, clinging to your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to understand this morning that the Lord Jesus cares more about your sanctification than your personal comfort. If you've been a believer any length of time, you already know that. Christ's commitment in Ephesians 5 is to to wash you with the water of the word so that in the end he might present you to himself spotless, without any blemish or stain or wrinkle or any such thing. What that means is that God, out of his love for you and commitment to your sanctification, is going to place you routinely in uncomfortable life circumstances so that your commitment to his word is tested, strengthened, and affirmed. And his desire in that is only ever for your spiritual good. But he confirms and strengthens your faith in the gospel and the word of God through tests and trials in this fallen world. And the only way that you and I can hear the word of God today and refuse to harden our hearts is if we hold on to our love and faith in Christ with a grip that won't let go. You'll remember that one of the most profound moments in the lives of the disciples came to them one evening when they were in a boat caught in a storm. 
and that storm was life-threatening. There they are. They're on, on a lake, and they're, they're, they're laboring, trying to make it across the lake, not knowing if they would even make it through the storm. And they look up, and Jesus comes to them walking on the water. Matthew 14. Look at what Peter does in response to Jesus. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, Peter begins his journey across those tumultuous waves in faith with his eyes fixed firmly on the person of Jesus Christ. And for a time, he himself, upheld by the power of Christ, miraculously walks on the waves. He walks on the top of the water. But suddenly he begins to sink. What changed? What transpired in the time between Peter walking on the water and beginning to sink? Well, in verse 30, it says that Peter took his eyes off of Christ and he began to survey his circumstance. He started to say, you know what, those waves are really big. And that wind, whew, it's really howling. All of a sudden, his circumstances came full bore into his mind. And in taking his gaze off of Christ, his faith begins to wane and he begins to sink. And this is often what happens to us in our battle with sin and temptation in the midst of trials. God, of course, has not promised any of us to walk on the water, but he has promised to strengthen us in the midst of trials, to, to give us endurance, to give us a growing faith. He's, he's, he's promised to strengthen us in the face of temptation. But if we try to fulfill the word of God in obedience, while all the while filling our mind with the overwhelming difficulties of our circumstances, we will fail. The more the winds of temptation and trial begin to blow in your life, the firmer your grip and gaze must become on the person of Jesus Christ. So when your flesh begins to draw your mind to how hard obedience is in the face of that particular temptation, or how hard obedience is in the face of that difficulty or trial, and it says to you, don't you see these crushing waves? Don't you see or hear the howling wind? Then you stand there, and like Lloyd-Jones says, you preach to yourself, and you say, Don't you see Jesus? Don't you see him there beckoning me to come? Don't you know that it is he who holds this storm in his hand, and it is he who holds me, and I will not let go. I will trust him. I'll enter into the storm if it's the storm he's brought for my good. And then, and only then, will we be able to walk in faith and obedience, no matter what comes. And this is the Christian life. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So we draw this to a close. Let me just bring your attention to two closing implications. They're fairly obvious from this text, but the first one is consider the basis of your confidence, the basis of your assurance. Is your confidence and assurance based upon the work 
and person of Jesus Christ? Or have you been attempting to find assurance and confidence by your emotions or by your performance? Confidence can't be found there. Because here's the thing, no matter how much spiritual fruit you produce in this life, you'll never reach perfection. And so if you're, if you're performance-based, you'll always be able to find something you can grow in and your assurance will wane. And so our assurance must be based firmly in the person of Christ. There are two aspects of this implication. The first one is if you, perhaps as I mentioned earlier, recognize that your confidence has never been placed on Jesus Christ and the response is repentance and faith, but secondly, if you're a true believer and you, you know that you've come to know him, but you've fallen prey to fixing your eyes on your circumstance instead of Christ, I pray this is just a moment to repent of that and fix your gaze again on the person of Jesus. Look to him. And secondly, hold fast to faith in Christ. Once you are assured that your confidence is really rooted in Christ, then hold on. Hold fast to faith in Christ. Refuse to let go of your love and your faith and your allegiance to your Savior. When the weight of temptations seem beyond what you are able to bear, grit your teeth and grab on to your faith, remembering who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you. Speak truth to yourself, reminding yourself of the price that he paid, the love and grace that he's extended to you, and let that motivate you to obey. When your circumstances go completely in the opposite direction of your plans and hopes and dreams and the world around you, even down to your closest friends and family like Job's wife tell you to just curse God and die, you hold fast to your faith. Say, no, I will not abandon my Savior. He's good. He loves me. He gave himself up for me even when I was still a sinner and a rebel against him and I will not abandon him. Come what may. This is how we fight temptation. If we as believers at North Lake Bible Church want to stand firm in our faith, resisting hard-heartedness, then we have to remember the past, examine our heart, encourage the church, and cling to faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for these simple and yet profound words all at the same time. Reminding us of the basis of our faith. And the basis of our faith is not found in us. And we thank you for that because oh, we're so feeble. The truth is on a daily basis there are multiple points that we can point to of failure of weakness where our faith wasn't what it should have been. Where our obedience was not swift or at all where our faith is weak, and yet, God, there you stand. The lamb that was slain, and yet, who lives again? We pray, God, that you would help us to rest our confidence and our assurance in Christ, in Christ alone. And may that confidence not breed passivity, but a resolve to further strive to be like him to love him more, to excel still more, to fight the good fight, as Paul said, that we might finish the race enduring, persevering in our faith. We recognize this will not come by us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps or gritting our teeth with our own determination as if that is what will make the difference. Those will have no effect unless you continue to hold us by the power of your spirit. And so we ask that you would do that as you've promised 
that you would hold us fast in our faith as we put forth our effort to love and serve you. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.